Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Dylan. Dylan's going to tell us all about his life. So Dylan, if you can tell me when and where you were born, and if you can describe what it was like, where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education you received. Certainly. So, uh, Tim, thanks for thanks for having me, first of all. Um, I, I was born in Janesville, Wisconsin in uh 1990 so february 9th 1990 is my birthday um just turned 32 you know this is it's interesting because i've never been asked this question before to describe my education and things like that um mostly because i don't really remember it all that much you know i i I lost my dad to suicide at six years old so like anything prior to six i really don't have much of a memory of um and then anything following um, what I remember is really tailoring my experience around not having to tell people about that, you know, not having to talk about that thing, um, that, that awkward thing that happened to my family. Um, and so like, you know, the few things that I do remember is like, I went to, I went to Adams elementary in Janesville. And then once my dad died, we, we stayed there for roughly a year. And then we, we moved out to, um, a town called Johnson, uh, Johnson Creek or Johnstown center, excuse me. Um, and I went to Milton school district and Milton is just a, it's a very small town, 5,000, um, small town for my area. Um, education was pretty rural. Um, so there was a lot of, a lot of farm kids around and then, and relatively few city kids. Um, and I was one of those city kids that kind of got I was just there, right? And I, I love to read. I kind of stayed to myself a lot. Um, I only, I only kind of hung out uh, around kids that generally made me feel somewhat comfortable, and that didn't really happen until I think fifth or sixth grade. Um, but the education was was rural America, right? Like we learned, we learned the learned the basics. Didn't really dig deep into the education. For me, my education really came from outside of school. I, you know, because of the trauma that I kind of went into or faced, um, I really dug into war history. Um, it's just something I really kind of connected with. And you know, I started learning about World War II and Vietnam. Um, my, my mom's boyfriend after, uh, after my dad was a Vietnam veteran and, and had um, – just a ton of history books, history movies back then it was VCR. Um, and, and that's where I really got a lot of my education is I was like, you know, world war two in color, uh, on, on VCR. And I would just watch all of these, um, you know, old war historic history movies, you know, learn about civil war, learn about world war one. Um, and that's kind of where I kind of pushed myself into learning, you know, in school, I was always, I did enough to be an A student and I just tried to go under the radar. I didn't try to make myself exemplary or any, any way. I didn't want to draw too much attention to myself. I was just trying to get things, you know, kosher. So I didn't have to deal with any problems at home in terms of that. Um, but I was, you know, I was smart enough to, to get A's. Um, but, I, you know, that's not really where I put a lot of my effort. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, in, into high school is when I, I started getting bullied. Um, I was a super scrawny kid. Like right now, I'm I'm six four, like two hundred forty pounds. I'm a I'm a lean, well built dude. Um, but back then, I was about the same height six one, six two, hundred and fifty pounds. So I was yeah. I was I was paper thin, um, <laughs> and and people made fun of me for that. And you know, it kind of kind of sent me into into this insecure mindset of trying to prove myself, um, you know, along with what happened with my dad. And, and that in itself was kind of a, a push for me to, to prove myself, you know, in many ways to him. Um, but in school, it was, it was kind of another added, added effect. And that's what kind of drew me to the military around 17 years old. So I, I joined the military when I was still in high school. Mm-hmm. So what age were you then? What, 17, 18? Yep. I joined when I was 17. I actually went to basic training um, when I was 18. Okay. Where did you do your basic training? Fort Benning, Georgia, the hottest place on the planet. At least <laughs> it felt like it that day. <laughs> Is that kind of 
um, where all of the army training's done, is it? Not not all of it. Um, back then, it was it was infantry only. So I, I joined I joined the military and became uh, an infantryman. And back then, Fort Benning was the only place you could do infantry training. Um, I think I think that's still the case, but they also opened it up to other MOSs as, as well, um, which was which was not. I don't think it was always the case back then. That was about 2008 when I went. And and how long was the training at Fort Benning? I think 16 weeks. So it was about three to four months. Yeah. Okay. And at the end of it, you come out as a, a fully qualified infantry soldier. Fully qualified is a relative term. <laughs> There's a. Uh... It's the same here, you know. Guys go through Catrick, and, which is the infantry training centre in this country, and then they come out of it qualified as a, an infantry soldier. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then and then they go off to the battalions, and that's right. when you start to learn the, the the real skills of being soldiering. Right, exactly, and that's that's this same. same with us. Is you know you you go to basic training and you learn all the the general understandings of the tactics, the the weapons, all the things that you absolutely need to know to have conversations with the people that you get to, you know, when you get to your units and your units tell you. Hey, this is actually how you do it the the right way, um, and yeah. So yeah, I was I was qualified. I think I came out. I think it was Halloween of two thousand eight when I uh, when I graduated basic training and AIT, which is our advanced individual training. That's the infantryman qualifier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I came home. I'm pretty sure it was November first. They came home back to the world. <laughs> <laughs> so where was your first posting where did they post you off to once you did you finished your basic training and you kind of qualified where, where did you go next so i'm i'm national guard so how how that works in the in the united states is you are you're based within your state so i i joined the wisconsin army national guard and when i when I came home from basic training, my my first unit was Bravo Company out of Green Bay, Wisconsin. So if you've ever heard of the Green Bay Packers, it was you oh, know yeah. we're we're a, a stone's throw from the from the stadium up there, and that so that unit we meet one week in a month. Uh, we'll do we'll do a couple weeks in the summer to do uh, active duty time, but that's all we do. So like when we're when we're talking about being stationed uh, guard wise, Wisconsin Guard. Um, we're, we're stationed in a city, in an armory and, you know, very, very simply we, we meet, you know, whenever the unit deems necessary that month and we do our training. So that's, that's like we have over here, we have the reserves. Yep. Um, and, and then you go off and you've got a civilian job as well. Yep. So, so if you're National Guard then, so what was your civilian job? At the time, I was doing uh, I was doing school, so I I came right out of basic training and went right into school. What, high school or college? Yeah, so our our universities. Um, so the 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 really great thing about the National Guard is like you get all of your college tuition reimbursed. Basically, you pay it up front, and then you get a reimbursement once you pass your classes. Um, so it was basically a full time job for me. Is is what school was, and that's. That was really, that was really only part of what drew me to the military. But it was it was something that was super ben- beneficial at the time. Yeah. So so what what college course did you do? I started with history, but I did not stay there. I, I really, again, always loved history, um, but I found myself kind of not enjoying. Uh, you know, when I look at the degree of history. Um, I was like, the only thing I can do is kind of become a teacher with this. There's not, like I could maybe become a historian, but at the same time, like to me, that's not something that I felt was going to be beneficial to what I wanted to do. And I I wanted to help people in some way. I didn't know how at back then I was super young and I didn't understand at all anything about life. Um, and so ultimately after about a year and a half of, of going to school at green Bay, I decided to transfer to Whitewater, which was a lot closer to my home or my hometown down in Janesville and started studying sociology, which was 
to me, a more beneficial thing to study in terms of understanding what's here and now and how to help people here and now. Um, history is always, always going to be beneficial to understand and know. But for me, it was, I need to understand how people think, how people work. You know, this kind of came back to what happened with my dad. I wanted to always ask that, get that question of why, um, but I could never answer it because he wasn't here. So I, I pushed into sociology, kind of developing that understanding of why would people choose suicide? Why would people choose to go down these routes? Um, what happens to people, you know, and sociology really um, gave me that, gave me that opportunity to study that kind of, that kind of thing. Yeah. So how long was that course? Well, it, it was supposed to be four years but I deployed in 2022 or I'm sorry, 2012. So it ended up being, um, overall, I think it ended up being about a six year ordeal of trying to get through, um, mm. my full coursework. But I think I ended up doing it in either three and a half or four years. All right. So, so what happened to the, to the history then? Did, did you get any qualification in history? No. So you did it for eighteen months. So you, you didn't you didn't get a chance to take an exam or anything to, right. to get a qualification. Yeah, it was the sociology, and and you pushed your way through that to 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 get the degree. Yeah, it was. So I was I was really in Gen Eds, um, you know, the general education part of the the United States curriculum. Um, so we're heavy on general education before you kind of get into your specific like history or sociology. So I'd taken a couple of history courses, but it wasn't enough to qualify me for any kind of like associate's degree. Um, went to, you know, went to uh, Whitewater and got that sociology degree in 2015. So it was, yeah. so, so with your history degree, did you have to pay back any of that money that um, the, the National Guard had paid you? No, because because I finished I finished those classes. I finished a year. All right. I finished yeah. a year of classes, and so that, you know, once you once you do that, you're good. Like it's it's not like they're going to take that away from you. Gotcha. And all the time that you're earning while you're learning, I guess with the, yeah. the National Guard. Not much, right? Like it's it's not much, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's enough to kind of get by. Yeah. So, with with your National Guard, then. Uh, you said that at the end uh, of 2015, you deployed. So is that with the, with the UK, if, if you're a reserve, then you, you can you can get mobilised and go on a, a deployment or you can sign up for a full-time reserve service contract. Sure. And depends on the type of contract, but if it's a full contract, you can deploy to an operational area or we get home commitment, which is doing a job in the UK um, for that. So is it kind of the same with the National Guard? It's a, it's a little bit different. Um, we we have, so like, I, I, I'll give you two examples, right? I, I've been on two deployments and they're very different deployments. The first one in 2012 was a, was a volunteer only deployment, right? So we had a, a, a Wisconsin unit being kind of built like a it was a it was called an agribusiness development team back then that was going to Afghanistan that was going to support like local Afghan um, governing officials of building infrastructure you know developing new new methodologies for for doing the same thing um, and so the the biggest the biggest thing about that is that you obviously have to volunteer for that specific mission. So we'll get an email every once in a while and it'll be, Hey, there's the 82nd ADT is looking for volunteers going to Afghanistan. And you, you simply, you simply sign up. They, they bring you in. Um, they interview you. I had to do a, uh, basically it was like four months of, I guess, tryout. Right. So we had six or deployment training. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was six or yeah, six or seven uh, other people that were alternates to the deployment while they had about 60 people. Um, and so like five or six of us, five to seven of us, I can't remember exactly how many of us were, were alternates. So if anybody fell out or anybody yeah. um, was like, I'm not, I don't want to go or can't go, 
we were we were going to be up next. And compared to this last deployment in 2019, we went to Afghanistan. That was my whole unit. My whole battalion went to Afghanistan based on a the U.S. government was like, we're sending you, you know, you know, two, one, two, seven. You guys are going to Afghanistan um, this time from this time to this time. You know, that's a, a government ordered mandate. This unit's going yeah. versus this unit's being built. Wisconsin requested to be a part of this this operation of, of sending ADTs. Um, yeah. So 60 of us signed up and. Yeah. So so that first deployment then. Where obviously you got through and you went to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So whereabouts in Afghan were you? So I was in Kunar province over on the east, east side of, uh, just north of Jalalabad. Yeah, on it. Yeah. So I, I, I did Kabul in 2002 and then I did two deployments to Helmand. Yep. Um, I guess for you in that area, it was, it's fairly benign at that sort of time. You could say that uh, at that time, you know, it was, it was a few years after uh, things like Lone Survivor happened, like like Lone Survivor happened in Kunar. Um, uh, Dakota Myers got his Medal of Honor there. So that was in the heart of the fire was his book mm. um, like three at the time in 2012, three out of the four medals, medals of honor that were given to U.S. service members happened in Kunar um, throughout the war. So it was like, it was a, it was a very kinetic area, but 2008, 2009 was like Restrepo timeframe, um, Hornet's Nest, like all sorts of documentaries and books were being written about this place in 2008, 2009, 2010. Yeah. Um, but then the ADDs, ADTs and the PRTs kind of came in and things started getting a little bit more, um, you know, benign as you say. And, yeah. you know, as we, the Taliban understands like when a PRT and a, an ADT comes in, we're bringing money. And so if they attack the, if they attack the PRTs, if they attack the ADTs, the, the organizations that they then um, coerce don't get money. And so what, what we found is that the Taliban wouldn't shoot at us. They wouldn't shoot at the PRTs because when we, went to a specific province or, you know, a provincial uh, district or a, 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 the governor's mansion, like we would be having conversations that would be giving these people money that then the Taliban would extort or coerce money away from these guys. So yeah. it was basically taking away their, their own income source if they shot at us. And yeah. so to us, it was very benign because they knew who we were. They were like, that's yeah. those, are the, that's the grand caravan. You don't want to shoot at that yeah. versus, RCP, which is the route clearance package that we had in the in the province, they would blow them up all the time, right? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, not only not only them, but like uh, SF would go into into the Gangrel Valley where Dakota Myers got his Medal yeah. of Honor. Um, it was two miles away from our base, and we could watch the A10 strafing, you know, strafing the Taliban. They would get hit every single night. They would go in there every night. They would get hit every single night, and they would just you know, be laying, laying waste to, to the Ganjagal. And so it's a very, it was a very kinetic environment, but it seemed like we never saw that. Yeah. So it was a, it was a really interesting situation. So how long you were there for? We was were. Because you so, guys do a lot longer tours, do you? do a year tours. Yeah. Yeah. Back then it was, it was 11 months for us, but we, we kind of got at that time of the war was really kind of split up. We, we spent two months in, uh, Kunar and then we moved to Kabul for three months to do QRF. And then I got moved back to Kunar for the rest of the tour, but it was 11 months total. Yeah. And, and, and obviously did, did you have your own interpreters? Yep. Um, or, 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 or you had local interpreters, obviously. Yep. Same as us, and, and and I mean I, I was in psychological operations, so I worked really closely with with my interpreters, and really closely with people on the ground at the same sort of time, mm -hmm. um, and you get close to these guys and uh, yeah. they become friends. Right, absolutely. Yeah. 
So what happened when you came back from that tour then? You obviously survived it. Um, and what was the next stage? You returned. Obviously, you get a big package to leave because you guys don't get R&R &R on the way through, do you? We did, actually. Back then, we did. On my last tour in 2019, we didn't. Um, so the so we we came home February of 2013, did about 10 days of, of post-deployment kind of decompression, we call it. You could call it that, but it, it like back back then and even now, like even 2019, there was just really wasn't worth it. Um, the decompression is basically you go to Camp Atterbury in Indiana and you tell or you go through finance course, you go through a reintegration course, you go through a number of different like trainings. Right. And, yeah. and not necessarily always about things that are super beneficial you're not in a place where you're really paying attention to, you know, like I don't want to sit through learning how to go get a job again after a year of what we did um, for six hours, right? Yeah. With, with relatively few breaks. Like I, I just don't, nobody wants to do that. And yeah. so, you know, there, there was few conversations back then about PTSD. It was a very short blurb. Um, There's few conversations about trauma. There's very few conversations about, um, you know, what has actually gone down in your body and what this actually is, has put you through. Um, and so it was, you know, back then, especially in the U S military, one of the, one of the biggest, I think, failures in leadership and culture back then was it was acceptable for, for leaders to say, if you say anything coming home, if you say anything about like PTSD, if you say anything about trauma, if you say anything about what you've seen, you're going to stay in, in DMOB is what we call it, DMOB yeah. longer. And you don't want that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so that kind of verbiage and that, that kind of discussion was, okay, well, if I, if I talk about these things, then I have to stay here and talk about them more. And that won't be beneficial for me. Mm -hmm. And the conversation wasn't, you might have PTSD and, and giving yourself one week, two weeks, three weeks here yeah. to to dig into that conversation and dig into that diagnosis might actually really benefit you when you go home and speak to your families for the first time, because they don't understand it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was 10 days of that. And then we came home and for me, it was back to school Right, that, that was the goal. And it mm -hmm. was, it was obviously right into the, the beginning of the semester. So I wasn't going to make it that semester. I was going to go back to the next semester well, I, I went back to jujitsu, my jujitsu gym that I always love to go to. And, and I was a trainer there. So I, I went back and I was teaching my first class and a brand new guy I'd never met came in and did a, we were doing a passing the guard drill and he did a heel hook to me and my, he, he dislocated my knee, uh, on literally the first, the first moment I was back into the jujitsu gym. And so, so What's that? That's a belf. Yeah, it, it was. It was brutal, um, and so went to went to the hospital, got a X ray, went and got an MRI a week later. My ACL was torn, and so obviously I looked at that, and I was in a situation where I was like, I don't know if I want to go back to school or if I want to go special forces and try to do something bigger for my country, and. I found myself in a, a pretty deep hole of like an ACL tear is something that you may not recover from, right? Yeah. You may not, you may not be able to retain your, your, uh, you know, staying in the military and doing what you want, what you love doing. And so I was, I was in a pretty bad situation. And at the time, because I was on, I was on active duty leave from my deployment, they sent me back to Fort Knox, um, to recover. Right, because I was I was an active duty soldier, so I couldn't recover at home. They had to do it for me, um, and so I I ended up spending. They wanted me to spend a year recovering from this ACL tear. So there I was I was going to get surgery, and then you know average recovery time is nine to twelve months. Well, I was in a place I was like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I can't do that. Right, I can't I can't spend 
when I got to Fort Knox, I was like, this place is terrible, right? It's just not one, it, you know, I just went through a deployment that was really difficult. I want to be around my family. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly had at least, if not a mild case, uh, I had a, I had a, a mid-level case of PTSD of, of what I had seen. And, and not only that, but like the, just the, the shock of the transition was really rough on me. Yeah. And I was alone. I was, you know, Fort Knox was, I had a roommate, but he had a broken back. He had a broken leg. He had been blown up 35 feet up a mountain in Afghanistan by a, by a bomb. Like this guy was, was in, in rough shape. And so I'm, I'm sitting there looking at, my situation and I'm, you know, not, I'm not sleeping because I had PTSD so bad that I just didn't know how to shut it off. Um, I was sleeping probably 45 minutes a day, an hour a day alone. Right. So I'm thinking constantly, I'm thinking every second of the day for 23 hours. And I just, it was exhausting. And I told myself, I'm like, you have to get, you have to excuse my language, but you have to get the fuck out of here. And it's, it was to the point of, you have to do this. You know what you have to do is you have to do whatever the physical therapist tells you. And they were like, the more you work right in a safe manner, the faster you get out of here. And I'm like, okay. So I just, I started working out every day. Um, I started doing pushups and, you know, lunges if I could, you know, like I started doing the, doing everything I could for my, for my knee, got the surgery. And then, you know, I was immobilized for a certain amount of time, but I was just slowly building up range of motion back in and building the strength in my leg again. Um, and I was out of there in seven months. You know, I, when, when it was supposed to take 12, it, I, I did in seven. Um, came home and went back, to, went back to school, went back to National Guard. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it was like, it was like it never happened. It was like the um, it was like the ACL tear never happened to me. Yeah. Like I I shut it out of my mind. I was like I don't I don't care how it feels. You're gonna act like this never happened. You're just gonna move on with your life. So did you go back to the jab slap cl- classes or or did you mug that off? I I did. I went back to I went back to sociology and um, tell you what is hard. It's real hard. Cause it was, it, you know, it, it was like, it's two different environments. And I, and I, I've spoken about this before, but not as much like when you're sitting in a hyper conservative and I don't necessarily mean that politically, as, you know, it, there's a little bit of political nature in that, but um, it, it like the, the conservative versus liberal mindset is just vastly different. Yeah. And, and there's benefits both ways. There's risks both ways, but I think, when you when you step into the hyper conservative mentality of soldiers, right? Of you have to do this to survive, and so feelings get pushed aside, yeah. which is absolutely necessary in situations. Um, and then you know you add on all the political co- complexity to it, but just the the mentality of this is what you have to do to survive, and if you don't do it, yeah. we're going to die. Um, versus the the hyper liberal mindset of school. Right. And, and sociology itself is a very liberal organization um, itself where it's it's more about feelings. It's more about understanding empathy and, and, you know, being able to have those conversations openly and safely. In 2014, when I came back to school, it was brutal because I one I didn't fit in. Right. Because I'm, I went from a hype, super hyper conservative to focusing on yeah. talking about feelings and stuff. And I was like, I just, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see the world in your, in your vision, right? I don't see the world in your perspective. It just doesn't make sense because I was just watching people die, you know, a year and a half ago. So um, how did you get out of that? Or, or did you stay in it? How did you adapt? I, you know what, if, if anything, I didn't just stay in it. I doubled down on it because I, I got my degree in 2015 for sociology um, and keep in mind, uh, I tore my ACL in early 2013, yeah. tore my right ACL. So I tore my left ACL the first time, <laughs> tore my right ACL almost exactly a year later. And then Just I, two up. A, a year after that, I tore my right ACL again. 
So for three years, I was in the National Guard with torn ACLs. I had two ACL reconstructions while also dealing with sociology and trying to functionally refit myself from, from you know, the hyper-conservative nature of, of being a soldier into school. And it was just, it was a nightmare, right? Isn't but that- it, it wasn't the same bloke that did the first knee. No. So I, I tore this, <laughs> I tore the second one uh, doing an air assault mission, a training mission with the, oh. with the guard. Um, so yeah, it was, it was unfortunate. It was a luck, unlucky, unlucky situation. So let's move on a little bit then. So, so you've got your degree, you, you've got another tour ACL. You've obviously you obviously recovered from that. Yep. At some stage, when did you when did you sort of leave school and what did you do before you deployed out again? Yeah. So when I said I doubled down, I, I never finished because I actually went to graduate school after um, after I went to or after I got my undergraduate. So in 2016, I got I went to graduate school for sociology and. I, it was a love hate relationship because I learned so much from it, but at the same time, it was such a, it was such a contradictory, uh, it it was such contradicting environments in terms of going to drill every month and then coming back to school and just realizing like the, the students that, that come through nothing against them, but they, they rarely have the experience to really back up what they're trying to study. You know, and, and, and so, and, and certainly there's, there's many intelligent students out there that are, that are, that are understanding of these things, but the trauma that is out there in the world is just in many ways, when I, when I was researching and doing my work in, in my sociology uh, graduate program, the study of violence was just not a question, right? It, it just wasn't a, a situation where people wanted to talk about, right? They, you know, the sociology as a whole seems to look at, um, at it seems to look at violence as a marker of uh, homicide, right? Yeah. Homicide rate is this, that means you have this much violence. And it just, to me, it just didn't make sense because I saw a whole lot of m- many different kinds of violence. Homicide is just one part of it. It's the, yeah. it's the worst part. Right. We're not talking about assaults. We're not talking about batteries. We're not talking about domestic violence, which is historically understudied. Right. Yeah. And so it just wasn't a question. And, and we were having conversations about the brain. We were having conversations about human habits. We were having conversations about racism and, and classism and ableism. And yet we weren't talking about what I thought seemed to be the core, which was the the relative use of violence or uh, you know, the, the understanding of how people interacted with violence, you know, to other people or with, you know, with that in mind within themselves. And, you know, it's a, it's a big complicated situation that I'm still trying to understand, but it was, it, it brought me a lot of internal conflicts with school itself. And I, I ultimately Mm -hmm. had to eventually just say, I, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And, and just so happened that I had, I was thinking that, and then I got a call like two days later where they were like, hey, um, here's your notification for deployment to Afghanistan. Um, you're, we're going at the end of, end of this year. I'm like, well, I mean, that, I guess that makes my decision for me, right? Yeah. Um, so I had to, I had to more or less drop out of school, uh, go on the deployment in, so we, we mobilized in late 2018. Um, and in between there, I was also not only was I doing graduate school, but I was also being a, a, a firearms photographer um, and a firearms instructor as well. So I was, I was doing a lot of odd jobs in there. But for the most part, I was doing school primary. Um, and so we deployed early 2019 to Kabul, Afghanistan this time. So you stationed I guess that was if you'd gone to Kabul. It was that the um, Sandhurst in the desert. The say that again. The Sandhurst in the desert, the West Point in the desert. I mean, yeah, you could you could call it that. It was it was a pretty. Uh, you were the training academy there. 
Um, oh no, that was at Carga. Um, we we actually were there in my first deployment, but no, we had we had guys there um, from our deployment, but we had guys literally all across Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. We were we were part of the uh, SFAB, um, the SFAB unit that was so that's Security Force Assistance Brigade. Um, mm-hmm. It's basically basically teams across Afghanistan would support Afghan units to, to bettering themselves, you know, being more efficient, you know, leading or showing, showing them how to lead their soldiers, uh, making better decisions, all that, all that stuff. Um, so basically you're a training team to the Afghan national army. Yes. And we, we just so happen to be more focused for my specific team was, uh, actually Afghan police, I think. So Mm -hmm. we, we basically had to, um, we basically had to ensure that all the checkpoints around the green zone were secure. And that's, that was our job. We were, we were an engineer team. So we were building up the checkpoints, making them more secure, more, uh, Mm -hmm. more focused around not letting bad people through. Gotcha. So I spent, um, I spent six months in Kabul in 2002 in the early days, and we were at the. Uh, I was at the ISAF headquarters, which was yep. at the university building, yep. which was opposite the radio television um, Afghanistan. Um, and in those days, I just myself and my interpreter, we could go out, just the two of us on the street, and just go and talk to people. Can't um, do that anymore. <laughs> if, I, if I was going outside the city at all, then um, we had the Italians um, used to escort us up to uh, Bagram and yep. went there a couple of times, which is just a dust bowl, terrible yep. place. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I quite enjoyed Kabul um, and, and I quite enjoyed Helmand as well. I spent a lot of time bouncing around Helmand. Yeah. Um, particularly on my last tour. Yeah. So, oh. Sorry about that. That's don't worry about that. We're good. <laughs> yeah. I I really Kabul at the time in 2012 was I, I it, honestly it was disgusting. I mean it was it was a in 2012 I think there were 5 million people in a city that was normally built for 2 million. Yeah. Um and so I think you know it's now actually from, from yeah. the latest reports I've heard, I've got I've got friends that are still there, uh, and it's it's not a fun place to be at the moment. No, yeah, and and even in 2019, like it hadn't. When I when we got there in 2019, I we were driving around on the same roads I had seen in 2012, and I was like, not much has changed. You know, there was there was I think one or two roads that I was like, well, they actually paved these this time. Because um, I remember, like south of Kabul, there was a there was a road at in 2012 it was called Route Gray, um, I think I think it was called Route Gray, where you get about a mile off the turn from the main road onto Route Gray, and it was literally a two foot drop of <laughs> cement to to gravel. Like I'm not even joking, it was a two foot drop, and they had they had a little you know gravel outlet around that so that the cars could go around, but it was like. We didn't even recognize that, you know, we're our big MRAPs and we're driving and all of a sudden mm. uh, my driver sees it, but can't slow down in time. So we literally drop <laughs> our front tires and my gunner nearly, you know, flies out of the turret. Oh, great. Um, but yeah, I mean, like that, that had all changed. Um, they had built up that area a little bit more, but for the most part, city looked exactly the same as it, yeah. it did in 2012 and 2019. So, yeah, I mean, it was it's rough. Like I, I feel for the people, like I, I wish, mm. I wish more could be done. Um, but Kuna, Kuna was beautiful. Yeah. I mean, being in those mountains, uh, it was, it was almost elusively built beautiful because, you know, you know that they're beautiful mountains, but at the same time, that's where the people that are trying to kill you are yeah. hanging out. I down in so Helmand, I, I was I did quite a bit of work up in Kajaki and up the the Sangin Valley, and it is a beautiful, beautiful country, yep. and it's a fascinating country, and the people are fascinating. Absolutely, they're friendly and and all the rest of it, and then you've got these other Tarags that are trying to kill you all the time. Yeah, or trying to blow you up when when you all you're doing is just trying to make life better for the average Joe in a in a in a country. 
and, yeah. and I think that's the that's the bit that, that hurts a bit when it when when there are people that are trying to stop you doing that. Right. Yeah. So, so 2019, you 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 finished there, uh, and you came back. So what happened? Because because all the war fighting for us finished in 2014. Yes. So you didn't get any war fighting at all. It was just support to the the Afghans. Yeah. We we, um, yeah. 2019. It, it was a comfortable deployment. Like we we were we did a, over a hundred missions, um, but the the U.S. didn't want to send people out at that time. So yeah. nothing really happened. There was there was our pretty much our last mission. I I'm, I thought about killing a guy. That was about the the closest we came that that or that that whole nine months that we were there to having any kind of situation. Um, it just so happened to be on the process where we're bringing in the new guys and then and we're moving out. So um, that situation happened, and then we left, and you know nothing nothing happened. Never never felt really super stressed over there, and I came came home and. Um, you know, had a, had a kind of to reprocess everything, kind of get through everything again, um, which was, which was a challenge, um, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't like my first appointment. It wasn't the PTSD. It wasn't what, you know, all the things I was trying to wrap my head around in terms of, you know, the bodies I had seen and the, the injuries I had watched, uh, in, in, in retrospect, but this, this one, I came home and I was like, I felt in a really strong place, right? I, I, that's one of the things I really liked about deploying is that when you come home, if you're able to really hone it in, you're actually in a remarkably strong place emotionally. Yeah. If you, if you allow that, those emotions to lock themselves away, Right, because you were you were just overseas, and you were able to talk to anybody you needed to talk to, or at least for me. Um, a guy had really great guys, and I could I could talk to my roommate. Was an, he was a fellow E six of mine. Um, I could talk to him about anything. Right. Yeah. If you come home and you don't find a place to do that, it, it becomes remarkably unstable. But if you come home and you create the the willingness and the courage and the ability to explain these difficult things that you just went through, you can build yourself into a remarkably strong person. And that's what I did. I, I had started having these conversations with my wife. I started having these conversations with, you know, the the fellow soldiers that I still had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna build. I'm gonna write my book. And so I started writing my book right after I got home. Um, and I, I started focusing on trying to develop a, a better understanding of people, right? Going on with that sociology degree, yeah. um, how people choose suicide, because I had almost chosen suicide in 2015. Um, you know, helping people through mental health, helping people understand trauma, helping people uh, you know, overcome because I was in a remarkably strong place at that point. I had done so much work since 2015 of recognizing that I was struggling and recognizing what I was not doing. Um, and so I started writing my book. I built a business um, and COVID happened, right? And yeah. it seemed, you know, I started was posting on TikTok right around the same time COVID happened and it was necessary. Right. It was it was such a, an important piece of my journey here to where I am now. Um, within the first month, I had like 10,000 followers. Within the first two months, I had 30. With, within the first six months, I had 150, I think. And then within the first nine months, I had 300,000 followers. Great. And, and so everything I was talking about, everything I was sharing, all the things I put in my book, it, it, it all was hitting true. To people is hitting people where it needed. I started a text platform where every day I send out a, a, an inspirational developmental text. Um, it's a, it's obviously localized to here in the United States yeah. and Canada, but it's it was helping people. Right? People responding with like, "Your texts are what I what I need every day. Yeah. They they center me. They keep me going. They've they've helped me made make." 
better choices for myself. Um, you know, your TikTok videos are, are always hitting me. Um, and so I found myself after being a, you know, an, a very introverted person for my whole life, I found myself being inundated with hundreds of thousands of people following me and watching everything I post. Um, and it's been a remarkably interesting uh, experience. It's been a remarkably uh, humbling experience to see, you know, mm. what I used to think are insecurities are people are like, these are your strengths, right? Mm. My voice has always, I've always felt like my voice has always been an insecurity for, for me yeah. because I never thought I had a voice, right? After my, after my dad died, it was, I never felt like I could speak about anything. And, and so I, I shut that off. Um, but the reality is, is that people love how I speak. They love my words. They love what I am trying to say to people and how I'm trying to say it. And again, it's been a, a, a super humbling experience of my, to, to go through all this and, and to, to see where this whole journey has come. And now I'm over, I'm almost to 600,000 followers and it's, it's insane. Well, so that kind of brings us up to today then. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow, that's remarkable. Yeah. That, yeah, I, I, I've really, really enjoyed this chat. Yeah. I, you know, I, I just, the what I'm trying to do is just bring a real conversation to things that, you know, in my, in my beginnings, we couldn't talk about, right. We couldn't talk about suicide. We couldn't even bring it up because it was yeah. so, it was so foreign to people. And the reality is, is that we can't, we can't live in a world that doesn't want to talk about things. And so I'm, I'm always going to be an advocate for the willingness to express things, the willingness to expose things. Right. But we have to do it obviously in a, in a manner that is yeah. functional, right? Like we can't, I can't look at you, Tim, and say, you're, you're, you're doing a shitty job with what you're doing. Like, I can't do that. I, the goal is I want to make you better. And so yeah. offer you what you're doing well and what you're doing, what you're struggling with and see where we can go together. And that's, you know, I think one of the biggest things that has helped me throughout my, my whole journey is that ability to say, Right. This person's doing their absolute best to yeah. to help people to try. And maybe they have it wrong. Maybe they don't. Maybe I don't know. But what I do know is I'm not going to reach them if I attack them. Right. And I've never I've never tried to uh, attack people. I've never tried to come at people. I have said. What if it's not that? Right. What if it's not this? And so when people come to me. I don't care, right? Like when I do mental health coaching, I don't care if people lie to me because I know what's going to happen, right? Like, you know, <laughs> I usually, everybody usually lies to me the first time we talk because I ask, how are you? And they're like, I'm good. Well, and you wouldn't. That's, that's a standard response to right. anybody. Doesn't and the <laughs> right. The reality is, is that sometimes I, 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 sometimes says, how are you? Oh well, my back's giving me some chip at the moment. Oh dear, and this and oh dear. Right. And, <laughs> and I wish I hadn't asked now. <laughs> right. And the the reality is, is like when when I ask that question and people say I'm good, I'm like, well, you didn't come to me because you're good. Yeah. Right. And like, and so, it's it's not when I look at that, like, it's not a bad thing to lie. It's yeah. a rational thing to lie. And I, I look at rationality in terms of there's a cause and effect, right? Anything you've ever been through in your life is, is rational, right? It makes sense. You, you chose to respond in a way that makes sense at the time. Now, when I, when I get to that understanding, I always look at people and ask, is it, is it logical anymore? Right. And that's where, you know, you look at that interaction of how are you? It's like, Tim, how are you? And you say, I'm good. Yeah. Right. Well, you didn't come to me because you're good. And now I ask, is it logical for you to maintain that same habit of saying I'm good to everybody just to push off your, you know, don't push their, your problems onto them. And the reality comes kind of flushing out of them of like, you're right. 
I'm, I'm here to talk about this stuff. I just don't know where to begin. And so a lot of what I do is, is kind of exposing people to words, right? Exposing people to feelings that they haven't allowed themselves to feel. Somebody to open up first and to do that, I guess you need to, to gain their trust. So uh, I think the natural response is to say, yeah, I'm fine when clearly you're not. Right. But then, then you need to build out that rapport with the person that then yep. you can open up to. And I guess that's the, the skill that you've yep. clearly gained. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and very simply, I'm there to validate feelings and yet I'm also there to invalidate responses. Right. Cause if you, if you respond the same way you've always responded, you're probably not going to get better. Yeah. And so that's, that's the hard thing about, you know, doing my job and I'm, I'm not a, I guess a qualified individual. If you want to, if you want to be clear, like I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counselor. I don't have any a degree in terms of, you know, no license to help people. I'm just a person having conversations. And so I think that's yeah. always important to, to put out there. Um, and I've always put that out there, but yeah, I, and that's, I think also something that's important about me is that there's a lot of people that won't go to therapists. There's a lot of people that just won't go to mental health professionals because they don't know what can happen with that. And, and knowing who I am opens them up to understanding that I'm not, I can't do anything with the information you give me. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is, which can be hard on me, but that's something that my perspective has to bolster. Right. Is that I'm not here to take on your problems, but you are absolutely able to express them. Yeah. And we will try and find a, a, a solution together. We'll try and find an understanding together. Um, and so, yeah, it's been it's been a remarkably humbling experience to help people through this process. We're, I'm, I'm seeing so many incredible results in terms of, you know, people becoming more, more focused on understanding themselves, more, uh, more aware of who they are and who they want to be. Um, you know, I'm just going through so many different experiences, learning so many things about other people and, and all of the, the vast, uh, diversity of the human experience. And it's been, it's been remarkable. Well, I think, uh, that has been fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate it, Tim.